the latest episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks speaks to entrepreneur, journalist, and co-founder of Enterprise Alumni, Emma Sinclair, MBE, about her journey as an entrepreneur. Thank you, Emma. Huge welcome to True Connections. And thank you, first of all, for taking the time to join us. I know many of our listeners will be really keen to hear from you, not only, I think, in respect of your business achievements, Emma, but also life outside of the corporate world and how you help others in many ways. I think many of us will be keen to hear just how you fit it all in. So we're really looking forward to hearing from you on that one. I can shorten the podcast by just saying badly, Alan, I fit it all in terribly. (laughs) Well, it's going to be a pretty short conversation, but perhaps we've got some similarities there. But it feels to me, Emma, is that your love of business and interest in markets, etc., just seems to run through your blood. And I love the story that you recall about talking to your father about markets and share prices during the school run. Is that the type of experience that you and your family had a discussion on regularly? Do you really have that? In all honesty, it took me to my 30s to realise that the games that my dad and I played on the way to school were unusual, but that's entirely true. Yeah, my family don't come from you know money and certainly the context for this is my dad had bought a few shares in some of the privatisations in the 80s. And he used to get a Financial Times delivered to the house in the way that you've got newspapers delivered on your front door in the 80s and 90s. And he used to drive me to school every day and we had quite a long journey. So, of course, we did, you know, what's your favorite color and how many blue cars have you seen and what's the capital city and times tables. But one of the other games we played from early on was guess the share price. And we used to do this essentially looking at the same couple of shares a day. And I have really vivid recollections of this. I would open the Financial Times to the penultimate page and I would look for these two or three share prices and I remember the newspaper being so big that it would flop on me so the sort of job was actually to manage to get the newspaper open. You know, fast forward a couple of years and I would read the market cap column. I used to read in the Lex column a few years later on the back page. So of course that's three or four stories a day with the kind of news and views and mergers and acquisitions and such like and that really was what I now in hindsight recognize, the reason behind my obsession and interest in stock markets, you know, which has persisted, it's how I funded my way through university because I took my student loans and traded them on the stock market. It's how I always made a little bit of money on the side if I needed a little extra pot. Some people play poker. I used to have a little stock exchange dabble. And really it kind of points to even now my future ambitions of my current business. You know, I have a lifelong obsession with stock markets. That is the story. And I guess it ties in with one other, which is my dad, his father. We always call ourselves a family of door knockers. You know, my dad started his working life with, I'm the first in my family to go to university. So my dad, when he wanted a job, he went and knocked on doors and he taught me to do the same. So everything is really because my dad took me to school. We read the papers and he used to talk to me about knocking on doors. So has that experience been good for you, Emma, in terms of when you're sitting around boardroom tables in various businesses that you've been interested in? Has it helped you? Well, well, I think so. And I think, you know, when you're building a business from scratch, there's a collection of challenges you have. But one of them is finding and keeping customers. So A, speaking to people. I think the door knocking is a useful tool because you learn to speak to people. I have all my life cold called, cold emailed, and that's how I've built my businesses from scratch. And in fact, to this day, you know, we'll touch on my business in a second, but to this day, I have a company that services very large corporates. To this day, I still cold email CEOs of Fortune 100 companies if we don't know them. And I think that probably gives me a few pieces of competitive advantage. One is sales and understanding how to win customers. Two is 
probably helped me to get over the shyness I had in my youth because I was a massive introvert. And three, probably helps me give good advice, which is, you know, people are busy behind computers and COVID, busy on the internet. Sometimes you just got to get a bit old school and literally knock on a door. Yeah. And that's ever become really, really tricky in the last 12 months, right? As you say, we've moved into a largely remote environment and a lot of businesses have been looking at how they actually maintain their growth strategy and their growth plans when they're not able to meet physically. So I know that's been a challenge for a number of businesses. Have you found it a challenge or are you seeing it as a big opportunity? Fortunately for me, my business is about knowing people digitally. So we have been lucky in that respect. And all of our customers who are large corporates need to know people and need to know them digitally. And equally, you know, we don't have a physical, well, we do have offices, but we don't win our business by, you know, just rocking up at someone's front door and knocking. There's definitely a lack of serendipity from events and networking and being able to go and see customers and prospective customers. But we haven't been hit like most of the smaller businesses have done who have retail stores who rely on food markets, who rely on festivals. We haven't had that same issue. But I know the problem has been finding audiences digitally. That's something that's very, very hard for small businesses that don't have the kind of marketing budgets of large companies. But, you know, I also know that people have gone back to old school practices through COVID because I've had people knock on my door to sell me fish, to clean the front porch. And in fact, people who've been cooking meals locally, chefs who are out of business because their hotels are closed. So I know it's been very hard for a lot of people, but there's still been, I think, an opportunity to be that sort of door knocker if it's in you. Yeah, great to see some improvisation, that's for sure, from many of those businesses as they've had to adapt. Just in terms of your story a little bit, Emma, you know, so you graduated, joined an investment bank. What did you see as a sort of trigger point to make you go out and do your own thing? Was there sort of a problem that you'd identified that you thought, I've got a solution for that? Or how did that come about? I'd always had entrepreneurial aspirations, but I'd also been guided to go and get experience in a large company because you learn discipline, you learn how to do financial modeling, you learn how to present, you learn how to work with colleagues, you build networks. So I didn't have the means and the experience and in fact the encouragement to do that from day one in terms of going straight into my own entrepreneurial venture. So there was no moment where I said, I've got this great idea, I must do it, but I'd harbored ambitions. I think I got to my mid-20s and I started to say to myself, if I was ever going to have an opportunity to take a leap and build a business, it's probably now when I don't have a lot of people relying on me, no children, no family that I've got to feed. If I mess up, worst case scenario, I'll accrue a bit of debt, I'll be a bit embarrassed, but I'll be able to get a job in a, at worst case, second-rate bank. I was in a pretty good bank at the time and it seemed the right moment. So it wasn't an overnight thing. It was probably about 18 months of planning. When I left, I didn't have the business in mind because I was in mergers and acquisitions and was working about 29 hours out of 24 hours a day. But I had it in me always. And I think like everything, sometimes there's a moment that something happens in your career where you're like, do you know what, now is the time to leave. I remember the day, I remember walking to my boss's office, I remember handing in my resignation letter, and I remember feeling that it was so scary because I was the first in my family to go to university, the first to work in an investment bank. I'd spent, you know, five, six, seven years, I was there being told how great it was that I had this job and what an accomplishment and what an achievement and wasn't I going places. So it was very intimidating walking away from a job with a salary that seemed applauded and seemed like something that I had worked really hard to achieve to go into the unknown. But that's what I did. Yeah. And you don't strike me as somebody, Emma, that has a great deal of fear. But from what you say, it sounds like there were a few doubts here and there, were there? 
Well, I think that you're talking to me now many years on when I have lots of experience of A, telling my story, B, of building businesses and C, probably more confidence in myself. I was a massive introvert when I was younger. To say that I used to hate performing on stage at school would be a complete understatement. I remember I had friends that used to write, you know, fake sick notes from unsuspecting parents in a bid to get out of swimming on a cold day. I never did that, but I was always terrified and was desperate for an excuse to avoid drama, performing in plays, reading poetry in front of the class. So I very much was an introvert. I don't think I said anything until about my mid to late 20s when I had a couple of epiphanies that A, I was going to have to speak up if I wanted to build a business. And in fact, another quick little anecdote, I was sitting in a hairdresser, reading a magazine, and there was a story about Beyonce who was talking about how she had created an alter ego for herself to separate her shy personality from her stage persona and I remember thinking to myself that if this international icon who made a living performing on stage found it terrifying I should probably feel okay about my nerves and put them aside so I was very shy and I remember my first public speaking engagement which I think was 29 uh, so I wasn't always like this. I wasn't always as forceful. And it came with time and experience. Yeah, I love the fact that Beyonce was one of your heroines. Well, I used to say to her, her alter ego was called Sasha Fierce. So when I was really nervous after reading this interview, I used to say to myself, Sasha Fierce. I adopted her alter ego for many years in a bid to sort of channel my nerves and put them to one side. So true story. Fantastic. And Emma, you've spoken a lot about people in your businesses being, I guess, a challenge on occasions and certainly an opportunity. But they, despite sort of automation and digitization, people still feel like they're at the heartbeat of many companies. Where do you sit? Do you see it as a challenge or an opportunity in your experience? Well, I remember when I started my first business and my then boyfriend's mother, who was an entrepreneur, telling me that the moment you hire somebody, you have politics and instantly business became a headache. And I thought, how ridiculous. It's certainly true that, you know, managing people is a real challenge because almost like being a parent, right? You don't have a manual. People have different feelings, needs. You're tired. You're running a business. When you're a founder, you're stretched and doing 75 jobs in one. Certainly a challenging role, I think, for all founders or managers of people is to do that and do it well because you can't give everybody the time they necessarily want and need. You don't know what everybody needs and wants. You can't make everybody happy. But I guess that is what points to recruitment styles that I think most people have and probably lots of entrepreneurs have about the types of people you recruit. Recognizing building a culture early on is pretty important. And also picking how you recruit people. I have a lot of people I've recruited off of the first five minutes of an interview when their CV just wasn't quite right, but for some reason it stuck out at me. So, you know, people are the best opportunity and the most important part of all businesses. But there are ways, you know, but certainly technology and automation helps to make a lot of processes easier and faster so people can spend time on initiatives that count. That's probably the part that technology really helps with. Yeah, and perhaps we'll come back to that a little bit later if we can. But just talk to me, Emma, about your experience. You're famed for being one of the youngest people to take a business public. How did you find that? What was your experience there? I'm intrigued to hear, particularly in terms of how you were treated. The fact that you were so young, did it feel to you like people were treating you differently? Well, several things. I believe I'm the youngest woman to take a company public anywhere. I'm not sure about person and no idea where the data is. But the funny thing is, is at the time, I didn't think there was anything unusual about it. It didn't even occur to me that people did not IPO companies because remember, from the age of three and a half, four, I'd been talking about IPOs and public companies. As far as I was concerned, there was no ivory tower-esque element to financial markets. So my first business I IPO'd, when I did that, when I had that goal, that aspiration and went through that process, 
of all the things that were challenging or that sort of struck me, it wasn't that there was anything unusual about this. So I'd say it was only a couple of years later when people started being surprised when I said I had a listed company or had met me and understood a bit more about my journey that I understood it wasn't normal. Now, of course, if I had really understood the implications or the sort of magnitude of listing a company or what it meant, I might have been more intimidated. But it seemed the easiest, quickest and best way to raise some money because I didn't have a network at that point and had no idea how to raise money. But the stock market was something I always chatted about. That's the first thing. In terms of how I was treated, I've never actually been asked it quite in that context. I was going through a process and people treated me respectfully generally. I think at that time I wasn't really conscious of looking for people's behaviours that might be any different. Now I probably spot behaviours I don't like or anything else, but I had a, generally speaking, a decent process. People were generous in their backing. I worked really hard. There were Lots of things happening behind the scenes no one remembered or saw. You know, people pulling out at the last minute, stresses and strains. But, you know, it was quite small. It wasn't a NASDAQ listing of a unicorn of a billion dollars. It was a small aim listing and it taught me a lot. It was very enjoyable and I would absolutely do it again. And in fact, have ambitions to do so, but bigger and better this time. And I was about to ask exactly that, actually, Emma. Is there anything you would have done differently in hindsight? No, because, you know, Alan, it was so small. And at the time, you know, I was so inexperienced. So there's nothing really to talk about or that I would have done differently because it was the beginning of my journey. You ask me now what I do this time around. Yes, things would be different. But you know, I am a voracious watcher of IPOs. I am never one to rush to an event unless it's a sort of dinner with entrepreneurs where I can always be tempted. But I've always got too much to do and not enough time. But I am the person that everybody knows will always come to a stock market opening. It gives me great pleasure and joy in a way that I suspect few others do. And I remember actually a few years ago being invited to join Sadiq Khan at the New York Stock Exchange and open the stock exchange on behalf of London's Open for Business and, and join some other British founders. And everyone was certainly looking forward to it. And it was great to be open the stock exchange. But I was literally wild with excitement. I mean, you could see there are pictures and films. I'm grinning. I was so psyched to walk up the sort of back staircase to get up there. So there's a real excitement for me around anything to do with the stock market. And, you know, some people get excited at a gig, pop concert, tennis match, I don't know, rugby. I get really excited at stock exchanges. (laughs) Did you get to ring the bell, Emma? I did. And in fact, I have a framed picture of it the only time in my life I have ever purposely got something professionally framed is the picture of that. And then they gave us this kind of commemorative coin. And I have my name badge that was given to me at the New York Stock Exchange. I have that framed, embarrassingly. You know, if you take me to go anywhere else or a museum or give me a pen or a notepad, I've got to be honest, can completely live without any of that stuff. I was the one that went and specifically got our little sort of going home present and carefully wrapped it up until I got back and put it on my wall. Sounds like one of your dreams has already come true. Well, it was the beginning of it, right? There are lots of places you can IPO and I've done AIM and it was brilliant to open the stock market. It would obviously be even more exciting if the banner that was rolled outside was my logo. But uh, who knows? Emma, just talk to us about your role at UNICEF. You've obviously been involved there for a number of years now. I think originally as part of sort of a mentoring program in developing countries, but now as a UK advisor to UNICEF on business innovation. How did that come about? How did you get involved there? In 2014, I had an approach from somebody that worked at UNICEF at the time who said they were looking to find a business ambassador to represent a program that was being funded to the tune of about £10 million called Building Young Futures, where effectively UNICEF and the program were aiming to help young people become entrepreneurs. 
and would I like to do it? I remember distinctly saying, you know, why me and why not? And I listed off a collection of famous entrepreneurs that everybody would know. And at the time, I had already started writing a newspaper column. And I think I gave a slightly different perspective and opportunity to tell the story firsthand than the conventional UNICEF ambassadors who were typically celebrities and, you know, certainly did interviews and amplified things in incredible ways, but didn't write and were slightly different in nature and appealed to a different audience. So, yeah, so in 2015, I went on my first trip to Zambia. Behind my desk is a picture of me and Kenneth, who I met there, who had a $10 grant to buy seeds to plant fruit and vegetables in his gardens. And I had a really interesting time learning the universality of entrepreneurship, I think, is probably the takeaway of what got me started there. I remember thinking at the beginning of my trip, what is a British chick from London whose IPO is going to be able to impart to anybody I meet in Zambia? And I met Kenneth right at the start of my journey. And he talked to me about, you know, how he'd gone from having not enough food to having so much that he was able to sell some. And yet he was still working 19 hours a day in the fields. And I asked him, you know, why are you working so many hours when you now have enough food and fruit and vegetables and you can sell some? And he said to me at the time, because I want my children to have the opportunities I didn't have, I want my children to go to school. And if you ask my dad why he worked so hard, he would tell you it was so his children could have a great education and have opportunities that he didn't. So it was a really great program because I learned that we are all the same. Entrepreneurs are really essentially all the same. And I think what it started for me at UNICEF was that I began to work on and launch projects that appealed to a business audience and were first. So that program was specifically focusing on the 1.2 billion adolescents who stand at a crossroads effectively between childhood and adulthood and are in a world where there are three times more unlikely to be employed than anywhere else in the world. So Africa, as you may know, has the youngest population in the world, approximately 200 million young people between 18 and 24. And this program was to focus on the opportunity young people had or the necessity, in fact, people had there to build businesses for themselves because they probably wouldn't find a job. That's how it started. My most recent project was I went to the ASRAC refugee camp in Jordan and focused on launching UNICEF's first crowdfund to build innovation labs in refugee camps. The story there being, well, at the time, in fact, a lot more now, but at the time, 50 million children had been uprooted from their homes, missing out on a chance to fulfill their potential like you and me, Alan. You know, their lives are on hold at a time when they should be free from worry, in education, preparing for their future. And that project was to attempt to address that by building innovation labs where children could learn skills, creativity skills, technology skills, that irrespective of where they ultimately ended up in the world, language barriers or not, they had a transferable skill that they would be able to use in lieu of the education they should have had to earn a living and support their families. So that's a sort of quick background on two of the projects that have been hopefully the most impactful and started something that has gone on to be replicated elsewhere. There have been crowdfunds in Australia. There have been so many places where I've supported great projects where people have done crowdfunds to effectively fund these labs in different parts of the world where children need an education and can't get one. And I guess, Emma, you're seeing parts of the world where the inequalities that we see, I guess, in the most developed of countries are even more stark in some areas where you're looking to help. And I'm sure there's lots that you have learned from that experience. Is that true? Yes, I think, look, all the things that you'd expect without be wanting to be a cliche. In Azraq, the temperatures when I visited were 48 degrees. It was absolutely boiling. I met families, women, young kids that were ambitious, ambitious like me and my friends, and were stuck as a result of events that they had no control over. 
They had very basic accommodation. Knowing their prospects and where they were going was so up in the air. And you know, I come from a family who left Eastern Europe as a result of persecution and arrived in countries where they had nothing. And first of all, it reminded me what my family had been through to get me to where I am. Second of all, yes, it was hard not to cry a lot of the time when I saw people rocking up at the camp in often beautiful velvet outfits because I learned that people travel in their best clothes and they can't really bring anything else. You know, a lot of things I learned and a lot of things that taught me to think differently about my home at home and were the beginning of other journeys I've had. You know, UNICEF opened my eyes to many things and also opened my eyes to many networks where I could do things from home, as we all can, Alan. You know, I host a COVID aside, great charity called Refugees at Home. Many people might have read about it because Gary Lineker had a refugee live with him via Refugees at Home. But for a long time, I've had refugees that have lived in my home as guests for a week, for a month. There are so many ways that we can all help. But I was really lucky to take those trips and see parts of the world I wouldn't otherwise have done so. And great that you're able to really practically help rather than just being an ambassador, as it were, but you know, this, this practical help that you can give here and also learn yourself, which is great. We can all be doers. We don't all have to be, and there's no judgment for those that don't. But if you look, there are ways that we can all be doers. Your profile, Emma, has kind of given you the opportunity, I think, to be a real voice in sort of talking about and spending time on things that you're passionate about, I guess, yourself personally. But a lot that we've heard about recently is businesses with a real purpose. For you, has that purpose become more important to you than developing and growing businesses? Or do you have a good balance? I love businesses with a purpose, but I love businesses that don't necessarily have a impact purpose but can make an impact on the world. I think really the way I think about things is I'm growing a for-profit business that services large enterprises. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm extremely ambitious for that. It gives me the firepower and the profile and the network to be able to do things outside of my day job to make an impact. So I think it's wonderful that there are businesses of purpose that are built on saving the planet or whatever else they may be doing. Phenomenal. But I also think that, you know, it's actually about the individual. We can be building any kind of business or in any kind of job, not building a business and make an impact. There's room for everybody. So I'd say actually for me, I'm always compelled by great stories about people doing great things. I spoke only yesterday to a chap I met when I gave a speech years ago at London Business School, who at the start of COVID found out that the chap that cleaned his building had lost his job at the Hilton Hotel and had no real income apart from cleaning his reception. And now together they've built a business cleaning at scale uh, residential projects. I love things like that. I love things that people care. I love where people are making a difference. But there are so many ways that people and businesses can help regardless of the sort of motive or motivation of the business itself. Yeah. And talking about businesses, I mean, you've been involved in so many different types of organization. I'm intrigued to know, Emma, your fascination with car parks. (laughs) Yeah. Look, when we're running a business, we all get knee deep in the sector that we were in. That was quite a while ago. But at the time, I had seen an opportunity to consolidate a sector and build a sector that had had limited attention previously. So when I fell in love with car parking, that was effectively when I learned that there was an opportunity to consolidate various companies in the space and grow something there. It wasn't that I had previously had a true love of car parks and felt compelled to go into it. (laughs) (laughs) So the love of high rises has faltered somewhat. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I'm saying that I can fall in love with a business and opportunities. And that's probably what I did there was I saw an opportunity. And I'm a person who needs to really feel about what I'm doing. And so I always remember my first piece of press. I was quite young in parking saying the queen of car parking. 
and you know i can honestly tell you i truly did care about everything i was doing and all of our customers and all of our sites but I think what I have is a love of business and sometimes it's not sector specific before I start. (laughs) And just coming on to, I guess, your current business enterprise alumni, which is exactly to your point, the love of business. You've gone from a very varied degree of interest in other business to a tech business, which, you know, on the face of it, I guess you wouldn't have had much experience in at all. Did you have any fears about going into that business that was 10 years ago now or so when you went into business with your brother? Did it hold any fears for you? Look, when I started the business, I didn't have much business experience. I know I'd IPO'd and done some investment banking, but I think the older you get, the more you realize you use so little when you started. I don't suppose that I felt intimidated necessarily by tech because my co-founder was a techie. And as you say, rightly point out, it's my brother. He's lived in the US his entire adult life. And that is absolutely his speciality. Whereas perhaps finance, investment, sales was my natural tendency. So I don't know that I was necessarily intimidated at the time, although there are so many occasions I can remember where we were involved in processes talking about topics that I had no understanding and it was slightly intimidating because I would generally be a person who if I didn't know something I'd go and learn it and of course you can't learn to code overnight. So I had a bit of a time and a process to really get to understand and know a lot more about technology and know that also it's okay to not know deeply about technology in order to build a tech business but in fact to have people around you who you can trust that do know what they're talking about. Yeah. And is that business entirely self-funded, Emma, or do you have other investors that you bought in over time? Yes. Well, when we started, we seeded it ourselves, but no, we certainly have investors now. We have funds, family offices, business individuals. And in fact, we are the only scaling software company in the world to boast a gender-balanced founding team and gender-balanced shareholders. That hasn't been achieved in technology anywhere else, but I feel really strongly about the perpetually negative narrative around women investment going to women in finance and technology, VC funding. It's a very, very sorry tale and a statistic that dismal. So some time ago when we did our first strategic sizable funding round, I made the bold decision that we would try and get 50-50, which we did do. It was extremely hard and it was very hard to maintain, but we certainly have shareholders and, and most of all who have been on a real journey with us and have been incredibly supportive and really got behind our vision, not just the financial vision and the tech vision, but behind our diversity vision and have supported us not just once, but many times over. And I guess that your global presence there is a way in which you can really influence that agenda, right? Given you're running the European and the Middle East part of the business now, as I understand, really make, I guess, a footprint on some of those issues that are high up on your agenda, right? Well, I'm responsible globally for finance, investors and strategy. So that's what I look after and I run for the whole business. I certainly look after sales on the right side of the world indeed. That is my patch which you'll typically find me on. I guess, you know, in terms of investors, the other thing is, you know, when people talk about tech companies, there's this tech crunch narrative that you must have VCs and you must follow this route and you must have these funds. We have a slightly unconventional cap table, but I don't believe there's any one way to do anything. There's not one size fits all. And I really believe in having business people as investors and shareholders because those are the people who have the experience and knowledge I most want. I really respect different pools of capital, and we certainly have a lot of them on our cap table. We certainly have a collection of different sorts of finance that have joined our journey. But I will say my most favorite investors to date and no doubt going forward are the people who built businesses themselves. So that means on my travels, yes, I get to meet a lot of interesting people and sometimes sit at dinner with people who say, are you raising? And it's always helpful to have a pool of people that you can go to as and when you need to do a financing round. Certainly true. 
Yeah. And what's the sort of plans for the business going forward? Well, we've been on a healthy growth trajectory. We were very fortunate to grow during COVID. And for those that don't know what we do, my business is Enterprise Alumni and we power the corporate alumni networks of many of the world's largest companies for, I'd say, for community and competitive advantage. So the world is full of very large number of medium and large organizations who need to tap this untapped pool of people, essentially, for recruitment, business development, for marketing, whatever it may be. So we're on a healthy growth trajectory. I'd like to think we're going to continue to do that and accelerate it over time. And who knows where the journey will end? But, you know, you've heard my unhealthy obsession with stock markets. So it's certainly not off my agenda to think that perhaps one day we might be a ticker again. That sounds like you might be ringing the bell again at some point. Well, Alum has a little ring about it to me, A-L-U-M. So I've secretly and not so secretly got my sights set on that, indeed. <laughs> well, I hope that goes well. Emma, it's abundantly clear that, you know, you just live life in both business and personal capacity with just bags and bags of energy. And if there's one thing we've learned, I would say particularly in the last 12 months, it's been about personal well-being, whether that's physically or mentally. How good are you at striking the right balance to ensure that you're making the right decisions, you can maintain the energy levels that you have? What's your secret on that side? I have no secrets or magic wands, and I am no better than anyone else at managing my time or energy. On the contrary, I have to constantly pull myself back and say no to doing things. You know, I fall in love with, I'll spot a business I love or have a chat with someone I really would love to talk to you more. I'm terrible with boundaries, have to consistently practice saying no. And I have no magic wand. I probably work a bit much. Although in COVID, it's been interesting for me. I'm very often on a plane and effectively working 24-7. But being at home has in many ways given me my first opportunity in a really long time to have boundaries to try and switch off on a Friday night, even if it's, you know, nine o'clock at night and try on a weekend not to be in front of my computer because there's just less mobility. I'm not out and about. I can't open my laptop on the move or on an airplane. So in some ways, it's made a difference in that I've been able to have slightly more boundaries because I have actually taken weekends for the first time. Yeah. So you've had a chance to recover. Well, I don't know that I've had a chance to recover because I've obviously been working extremely long hours. And, you know, sometimes I start incredibly early and finish very late because geography is such that sometimes I have calls with India and sometimes I have calls with my biggest team on the West Coast. So I don't know that I have any secrets. In fact, I find it quite tricky when I listen to people who say, you know, I get up really early and get on my peloton and then I do my work and then I have me time and then I use my notebook to really you know think about all the things I need to do I am constantly behind constantly juggling have a family cats other interests you know Netflix addictions and a strong desire to read the whole internet at night before I go to sleep so I can't say I do it well but I do my best but that's in many ways a huge comfort to many others and many people listening who will see the same challenges that you do and to hear somebody else who doesn't necessarily strike it right all the time, I'm sure is comforting. I pay good money for someone to take my phone away from me at night before I feel compelled to watch that YouTube clip or read that Twitter feed or something. I get comfort from knowing other people are doing the same. <laughs> so none of us are perfect. And I think the basis I've been working on through COVID is just doing my best and trying not to give myself a hard time. If I don't do as much work, don't get everything off my to-do list, don't do as much as I need to, you know, just doing my best really. And I hope that other people take that to heart. We all give ourselves a terribly hard time. And maybe I think the lesson is don't.
Yeah, exactly. And finally, Emma, before we let you go, give me three things that you stand by as an entrepreneur and that you would say to an entrepreneur who can be successful. What's the sort of three key things that you often stand by? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess practice what you preach is the first thing. You know, if you're going to talk about things, then be the example of what you're talking about. And I guess my gender balance cap table for me would be my biggest example. I guess I stand by knocking on doors. You know, business does not just rock up to you. You can't wait for people to fall in your lap. And people often accuse me of being very American in that respect, but it's true. You can't just sit back and wait for people to arrive. And I guess I have so many third things on the list, but your family, personal time. My grandpa always said to me on his deathbed, you know, he said to me, you'll never wish that you spent more time in the office. And that haunts me in some ways and reminds me in other ways to ensure that I give time where possible to the people that matter in my life. So I am a really hard worker and practically nothing will take me away from my business. But if my phone rings and it is my 96-year-old grandma Rose or my parents or my sibling, I will always answer those calls and those are the people that matter most. Yeah, and rightly so. Emma, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. I've loved having you part of our conversation. I know that our listeners will certainly have really enjoyed it too. Thank you again, and we'd love to hear from you again next time. So look forward to speaking to you then. Thanks, Alan. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening, and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Hold up. 